And this is episode 23 with Steven Cloth. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. My guest, Stephen Cloth, is a behavioral economist, author, speaker, and the founder of AVO, a Seattle-based consulting firm. Stephen is known by his clients as the expert's expert when it comes to marketing. He is an emerging voice in behavioral economics and business. And over the course of his career, he has published several significant pieces of research and thought leadership papers, which he has presented at conferences around the country. His work focuses on business strategy, consumer insights, product development, branding, entrepreneurship, and social responsibility. And in this episode, we'll dive into Steven's beginnings, his journey from employee to entrepreneur, his work at AVO, and how Steven works, and some of the tools and tactics he uses as a top performer, and finally, his outlook in life as he continues to grow. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for being in the show today. Thanks for having me. This is really See, I, want, I want to pr- start this with a few things for the listeners. All right. As I said, first off, I'm doing this completely under duress. <laughs> Alonzo and I go way back. So uh, I'm making it my goal here to turn this interview around on you. So <laughs> All right. We'll see how it I'm goes. Gonna make, I'm going to make him uh, answer some of my questions here, too. So. <laughs> All right. We'll see how it goes. So I first wanted to go back to, to your beginning, Stephen. What was your childhood like and what did you want it to be when you were a kid and who influenced you the most growing up? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I was a pretty energetic kid. I was pretty shy. Um, I was very into sports. I was very into the arts. Um, You know, my dad is big into sports and definitely grew up playing soccer like you. Mm -hmm. um, But then I also came from a family where my grandmother was a painter and Um, My mother was a musician and taught music, so, um, and then my dad was in mathematics, so I think I was very influenced at an early age by both kind of the mathematics side of things and then also Mm -hmm. the arts and more creative side of things. Is there anything that you can point back to those years and look back and and might see the person that you are today? This is like a therapy side. You're asking me to go deep here. (laughs) Um... I don't know. There's a funny, I remember we had a school assignment when we were younger where we had to time commercials on TV. And it was like the first time I realized that all commercials were 30 seconds. And I was like, wow, my mind was blown. I always think back of that. I was like, okay, how did I end up working in marketing? But I don't know. I think I've, there's a funny, uh, I don't know if it's funny, but there's a pseudo joke in the, in psychology schools that you go into psychology to figure out what's wrong with yourself. And, uh, you know, when I got into school, I think definitely a period in my life where I was doing a lot of reflecting. And I think I was always a really introspective person and always curious about people um, and kind of how people operated. Um, I think what you learn as you get older and you, you know, especially as you kind of go through the discipline of learning about that is, just how complex people are and uh yeah i think i've always kind of been curious about kind of what motivates people and understanding something that interested me about your profile is 
I'm sure that those interests led you to pursue a degree in psychology, mm-hmm. but you also went to do a degree on music and business. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how that played out for you? Yeah, well, I think business, I think, was kind of a, I don't say a safe choice. I think we give kids advice today that just get a college degree and you can do whatever you want. I think now, or at least when, I was, when we were in school, I think the better advice would have been if you don't know what you want to do, get a business degree. I think it's very applicable to a lot of different mm. directions. Um, you know, I think now I'd probably amend that to either say business or computer science degree. I think I went into the business school because I thought it was kind of a good thing to do. My dad worked. and Was that like a backup thing in case? Not necessarily a backup. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh-huh. I originally thought I was going to go to school to become an architect, which mm-hmm. is like the perfect impasse of kind of art and science. I still think that. Um But you, I mean, you know, Marcus, uh, Kuna, we both had him in mm-hmm. the business school. I think he was the first professor that really um, got me incredibly curious about marketing and um, also Richard Jaltz, who was the marketing research professor, which I was already doing a lot of psychology classes. And those were two areas of business that felt um, like a real intersection between understanding human behavior and kind of applying that in a, in a business setting. So mm-hmm. and Now, it, it seems to, to me that by looking at, you know, three different degrees, like music, psychology, and business, you, you're probably experiencing something that a lot of us can relate to, which is the, the idea of being a multi-passionate being, right? Mm-hmm. At what point and what was your process to hone in on one of those where you felt this is the thing that feels the best for me to continue to pursue versus the others? I mean, I don't think I did. I mean, the reason I did the music degree was because I wanted to continue to have an excuse to pursue music and enjoy music. Uh-huh. And so that was an obvious way to do it. Um, so you never had a plan for that degree? No. Okay. No. I mean, I think there was a time... It was pure interest in music. There, there was a time where I thought I was going to pursue music professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the best for everybody that I didn't do that. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I was not one of those kids and I I still am not who was like, this is what I want to do and put my finger on the end point and was like, all right, now we're going to focus all the attention to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was younger, I was definitely more interested in things like sports and music As I got older, um, you know, one of the biggest things that influenced me was traveling mm-hmm. and living abroad in college. You definitely are exposed to things that you're not exposed to, at least, you know, parts of the world that I lived mm-hmm. in the States. And it really starts to shape how you see the world. It starts to shape how you view what matters and what's important. And, and on, on that note, what, what led in your journey to deciding I'm going to focus my skill development journey on marketing. Pure luck. Pure luck. I think, I, you know, one of the questions I always ask, like to ask people is, um, you know, did your profession, did you find your profession or did your profession find you? Um, I definitely fall into the latter bucket. And during your time working at these small and big firms, is there anything that you can recall as a the small stepping stones towards opening your own firm? Say my first agency job at MEC, 
you know, I learned to work my ass off. You know, people there just, if you left at 6.30 at night, people were giving you dirty looks like you were leaving early. Some of these stuff was you were. Yeah, it was people really worked hard. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that was something that stuck with me when I got recruited to go over to Razorfish. Was this in the small or large firms? These are both big firms. These are both big, big firms. So large firms have less of a work-life balance, I guess. No, I don't think, you know, my, when I, so after Razorfish, I went to a small firm in Seattle, Williams Heldy. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was kind of debating that choice, I remember my dad said, to, excuse me, my dad said to me, um, you know, big companies have big company problems and small companies have small company problems. So, um, you know, I think I've just always, I hate the term workaholic. I've just mm-hmm. always been driven to figure things out. I think I'm pretty, um, you know, as you and I have both discussed, I think both ADD and OCD is something we both (laughs) struggle with. Um, And it's definitely a a negative in some ways. Um, And I I say that not wanting to overuse those terms, but, um, you know, I think those things have also driven me to become a little bit obsessive and perfectionist about things. Um, which again has both a positive and a negative implement or a side of it in work life. But um, no, and I, I understand, and I also understand that your transition from working at firms to opening your own was not really a black and white situation. Like, what were the steps that you started taking towards making that? possible for you and when i ask this question really some of the the questions that come up uh, when, when talking about people's transitions is like how did you make the transition was it like a side gig at first uh, was that one of these things where you had a big client that you could contract for at the beginning so that was good enough for you to make the switch and sure. put all your uh, eggs in one basket at the, the first time yeah i don't know there wasn't I've, I've thought of like, was there like a day that I was like, I'm going to do this. And you know, there really wasn't when I went to Williams Heldy, you know, before I joined and I'll give Mark Williams a shout out. who has been a great mentor to me as well. Um, you know, when I went there, I talked to Mark and I told him, I was like, look, I really want to start my own company someday. And, um, you know, cause so we kind of went into that very open and. Oh, wow. So you were very open about oh, your yeah. future goals with him. Yeah, and so I had a chance to start kind of my own kind of media marketing department. At, you know, Williams Hill is one of the oldest creative shops in Seattle. Um, and, you know, Mark was really good the whole time about being very transparent and helping me understand the financials and just being really um, open about teaching and everything that goes into it. And so, you know, when it came time to, for the transition... I think I probably had it easier than most people because I was really teed up for it. Um, Could you explain what, what what you mean with that? Yeah, I mean, when I left Williams Heldy, you know, there were opportunities for me to jump into independently and like immediately. And, immediately. and I, I don't, I, again, I say this repeatedly, I'm just a product of just luck, you know. Um, it was very just... How did these opportunities came about? just existing relationships really i mean that's the other thing is the longer you do this just the more people you know and very fortunate to have some people who kind of took a chance on me when we were starting the business um you know they couldn't they couldn't they could have not and then this would be a very different conversation how did they know about your work 
Because we'd work together. We'd work together. Through William's health. Uh, Maybe yeah, other and, firms. and in the past, yeah. Just, I mean, the other thing is when you work at big companies, big agencies, it's pretty common that you people, build your network through. Yeah, people all, go client side. You end up with a lot of colleagues mm. that end up client side. So, um, yeah, it's really it's. Did you bump into Did you bump into any uh, non-disclosure agreements or uh, I forgot non-compete agreements? Yeah, during that time. Yeah, I mean the good thing about working because that seems like a you know like an easy way to transition, right? Make 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 a good, good connections with the clients at the current company you're working with. Sure. Yeah. And then and then, and then uh, try to op have an open contract with them independently, but sometimes that's not as easy as it seems because there is this non-compete. Yeah, agreement. for sure. And um, you know, again, that's where I was very fortunate to have Mark in my corner, and he didn't care. Um. I wouldn't say he didn't care. I think we, like I said, we both kind of went into it with eyes wide open. There were some projects that were ongoing that um, they were still involved with. And I was kind of playing more of a consulting role. Um, you know, there was one client that I was really leading things. And ultimately, you know, probably after six months or something, we just kind of both agreed that, you know, it was just made sense for the clients to continue working with us directly instead of through them. Um, yeah, again, I was just really lucky to have that. I don't, I mean, it's not, starting a company is not a part-time job. Um, I get there's this idea that people are going to like build up a portfolio on the side. I've never understood it. I mean, obviously some people do that. I've just, it's a, uh, to me, it's like a, the amount of work that goes into it is way more than you can ever anticipate, even with your worst expectations of what it's going to be like. Um, but two, it's, it's kind of something you either have to do or you don't, you know? And I think whenever you have a plan B and that safety net, it's never going to put the fear of God on you that you need sometimes to put in the time or take the risks that it is required and kind of being successful in doing this. So Now to paint a picture for those who are listening and without sharing any confidential details, Is there a recent engagement or a top of mind engagement that you could share with us? What did that look like? What type of work you did for them and why it was so successful? So I'll just give you a quick example and I, I won't share who this was with, but mm -hmm. we just helped a um, large public company go through a rebrand and pretty early on, their, I think their expectation was that This was a company who had made a bunch of acquisitions and was trying to aggregate their portfolio of companies into a singular brand, and they were doing a rename. And um, and so, you know, a lot of what we ended up doing was helping them think through their entire portfolio and how it was structured because, you know, your products and how you organize your products ultimately impacts the story that you tell as a company. Um, but that obviously has implications too, as far as how you organize your company internally. And so, um, so I guess this engagement involved uh, a lot of very deep consultation through intake interviews with stakeholders, mm -hmm. and then you curate basically all the answers and paint the picture for them or where they need to have kind of like the work of a therapist, like you said. Yeah, I mean, we worked very integrated with this team it wasn't mm -hmm. sometimes we have projects where we'll go in and then we kind of go back to our thing and present them what we you know this was a very um very collaborative effort just given how nuanced it was and how kind of the um 
implications for the company as a whole. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting project. And now, as a consulting firm, once you get to that point where you give them enough guidance to where they need to be heading, do you also help with the execution? And how many parts of the rebranding do you touch when you're working with such a big client? Yeah, so I mean, we definitely focus on the strategy side of things. Um, you know, one thing I say to clients up front repeatedly is we're not a creative shop mm -hmm. um i am a person who strongly believes that how things are presented visually has a huge impact on how they're interpreted and so we do put a lot of um emphasis on design and you know how things are visually presented because if we write a 50 page report You know, most people aren't going to read those 50 pages, but people are surely going to flip through and try to understand the keys of it. And so... Um, How do you present your insights? It depends. It depends on the client. It depends on the project. It depends on... On a tactical way, do you go Word or do you go PowerPoint or Keynote? Or? Um, I mean, a lot of what we do actually is in InDesign. It's, uh -huh. For me, it's a little bit more flexible than some of those other platforms. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it's like a corporate looking brochure type of thing that you present your insights with. Yeah. I mean, we have some standard templates for, for different types of reports that we do as far as how they're visually portrayed. I mean, we obviously we work in PowerPoint and Word and all that mm -hmm. stuff. It's, it depends on the client, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think InDesign for us has been a really good tool to kind of give us the flexibility to get it to do what we need it to do and some of these things are very precise so what would you say are the skills that have allowed you to have a boutique business like you have yeah as a the experts expert yeah so i mean coming from a science background you know i think if i when asked to kind of identify the one thing that we do differently i think it's our ability to look objectively at problems which is a really hard thing to do. And I don't think there's anything as like pure objectivity. We all come into things with biases, but but understanding what those biases are going in so that we can help mitigate their impact in our decision-making. Like we had a client who was doing a audit on their, their piece of their retail business and they brought in this um, consulting group who this is like specifically what they do is consult with retail businesses and they're the retail experts on this. And they came in and, you know, the clients left very, very, very frustrated with what they did. And I just said to them, I was like, these guys, these guys answered your question before you even asked it. You know, they came in with these assumptions of what this was and what they needed was objectivity to answer the question. And the answer might not have been what they wanted it to be. But they needed that objective lens. Um, and so I think that's one thing that we bring. How do you cultivate it approaching problems objectively? So I think the one word that I would pin on that is context. So I think a lot of times the mistake that people make when trying to solve a problem is they go directly to try to answer the question when they don't understand the context within which that question exists understanding the context within which that question exists matters and it matters greatly and that exists on many fronts it exists on if you are trying to solve a specific business problem you know let's say we're um, working for a manufacturer trying to solve something you know sometimes we will literally go as like 
I'm not even exactly like I'm literally just took a course on like industrialization because I felt that for me to solve this problem, it was important for me to understand the transitions that have been made and how in the past through, you know, the first industrial revolution, the second industrial revolution, the third, and now we're kind of in this fourth industrial revolution manufacturing. Um, you know, it was important for me to understand historically how those changes occurred. What were the drivers? How did it impact labor? What were the outcomes? Um, and so that knowledge is going to have a huge impact on how I understand this new problem that we're dealing with. And I don't think people generally take the time to understand, but even on a client side, if clients asking questions, I always say when a client is pushing back on something that I objectively disagree with it, 99 out of 100 times it's because they have a piece of information that I don't have. It's they have an internal political pressure that they're getting or something or something that is changing that I don't know. And so even when a client's asking a question, it's important to understand the context within which that question's being asked. That's great. Now, you were talking about that you're very selective with your clients. Now, I was reading a piece that the young professionals of Seattle, eh, they conducted an interview with you. I just want, for everybody who just heard that ding, I just want to say that he specifically <laughs> said to me at the beginning to turn my phone off. And I, I said, you better turn that. your phone off. <laughs> I can't and believe now, that happened. <laughs> now his phone's ringing. <laughs> I look at the alarm, but I didn't look at this. <laughs> um, so back to that interview with the young professionals of Seattle, uh, there was uh, a phrase that you said, you know, happiness comes from pursuing and doing meaningful work. What is your definition of meaningful work to you? And if, again, going tactical here, maybe you can tell us an example of a recent engagement where it felt like you were doing meaningful work. Well, so we have a mantra internally that we say, you know, kind of one of our statements that we're helping people help people. You know, we as consultants, we are not the end product. Our role is to help people who are helping people do better at what they're doing. The enablers. Yeah, I mean, there was a great, I don't know if you caught the Tim Cook interview with Kara Swisher that came out last week. You know, he had a great section about purpose. And I, I agreed very much with what he said that, um, you know, everybody goes through life trying to figure out what their purpose is and what purpose is. And, you know, our purpose is to help people. And the sooner that you figure that out, the better off you are. And I think what we do when we're searching for meaning is trying to figure out what that looks like for us. You know, what's the means through which we're going to do that. Do you have a professional hero or shiro in mar the marketing industry right now and, and why? Um, if you do. <laughs> in the marketing industry. Oof. Anybody that you I mean, I think to. I think the person who I've always enjoyed his way of thinking in the marketing space specifically is Rory Sutherland. Why? Um, I mean, I always joke that if Daniel Kahneman's the you know, grandfather of behavioral economics, that Rory is kind of like the drunk uncle. Mm -hmm. Now, a he's just hilariously blunt about things, um, but B, I just think he's something that sees the world kind of as it is. Again, I think he has a real objective perspective on the world. Um, and I think it's led to him and Ogilvy doing a lot of phenomenal work because of that. And, uh, you know, now he's at a point in his career where he's kind of sharing some of those insights, which is, which is awesome. And we need more people who think like him to be solving some of these challenges. So. 
What do you think has been the best investment in your professional growth? You know, I subscribe to great courses. I subscribe to Linda. We just started doing master classes. You know, I am a pretty aggressive reader. I listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, it's just part of my... um, it's just yeah, it's part of the routine. It's just master classes. Is that like a like a site or is that? It's yeah, it's awesome. Bit, it's um, is that the celebrity one? Yeah. Huh. How yeah. how is that? Which which class did you took? Um. So the Steve Martin one, which is on comedy. Huh. But for people who do public speaking and stuff, it's really good good material. So. You know, it's interesting that you're bringing up that you're taking a course on comedy. Because I've recently read uh, something about the that in the modern world you really have to be a polymath, a word that I wasn't familiar with, which is combining different skill sets into one to really differentiate yourself versus popular advice of just going and focusing on one skill set. How in the world did you decide, you know what, I'm going to take a course on comedy as part of my professional development? I don't think there's a right answer. I think for some people who are very passionate about certain things that want to specialize, there's, you know, at least now, like, needs for people like that. What was your idea behind So, when I, comedy? I actually took a, uh, took a professional course, a public speaking course uh-huh. that was run by an improv group. Hmm. And it was one of the better public speaking courses I ever had the opportunity to take. You know, I think that this idea of kind of transdisciplinary learning is something that really we should focus on um we're i was at a dinner recently where people were talking about stem and um somebody started talking about the new term that's being used the steam so it's adding arts liberal arts to that equation and what they were talking about is as you look at you know things like computer science or different technology you know science whatever field that is um the importance of art and creativity in problem solving and similarly the importance of some of the more technical skills in some of the traditional STEM fields that can be applied to more liberal arts types fields to help move those forward. Um, So I do think that, you know, we undervalue what we can learn from different areas. You know, some of the, I think most important things in my career I've probably learned from completely obscure fields, you know. Um, and I think as far as when I look at myself, what I need to improve on, and the things that I'm doing more of now than it was earlier in my career, like public speaking. Um, yeah, I mean, you'll get way more out of doing something like this or taking an improv class than you would reading a book on how to be a better, better public speaker. Yeah, I can promise you that much, so. Now I wanted to like move to to the how I work rapid fire questions that I that I mentioned to you, and I think this 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 should be fun. Uh, what's your morning routine? Do like? I get to ask questions? When's the part where I get to question <laughs> you? When we work together to start your own podcast. Oh, <laughs> so I listened to the interview that you did with Margo, who's a good okay. friend of mine, and I love Margo to death. And so I was listening to this section and. I was like, oh gosh, he's gonna ask me these questions. I don't I don't think people should model what I do. Okay. I am probably not a good example. My I can tell you what my like my best morning routines look like. Okay. 
you know, I wake up, um, really the things that go into my morning are working out, meditation, reading, and eating, you know, trying to eat something healthy. What time you usually wake up? Again, in my ideal routine, I'm usually up like 5.20. All right. But sometimes, depending on what time I get to bed. And you after know. you prime, what time you usually head to work? How long do you take to prime, I guess? Mm, oh, it just depends. I mean, again, in my perfect schedule, I'm yeah. kind of at work around 8. So around two hours you try to allocate to spend with yourself. Yeah, I mean, the thing, you're a big fan of Cal Newport, as I am. If you guys haven't read Deep Work, definitely check it out. I mean, one of the things, and actually this is, I'll give Daniel Rossi over at GeekWire a shout out here. But, um, you know, one thing that I find that reading in the morning does is kind of slows me down, gets me to focus on one thing for a period of time, Hmm. where instead of going right into work and having 300 things thrown at me, um, it sort of helps me just get my mind focused that, okay, you, you know, there's no phone, you know, it's just focusing on one activity for a set period of time. One word that best describes how you work. Ooh, I don't know, probably fragmented and scattered. <laughs> <laughs> Current computer? <laughs> MacBook Pro. Current well, actually, device. I have two. Oh. I also have a Dell. Oh, okay. You have two. Yeah, because I can't cope with the... PC or the Mac version of Excel is just painful. And yeah. we do a lot of They data still analysis. differentiate features between the two. <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah. Current mobile device. Uh, iPhone X. App software tools you can't live without. I mean probably email. Yeah, I've kind of yeah, probably just my email. I use Polymail, which is awesome. Recommend it. Why? Mm, they've got a few good features. They have All a good right. feature where if you don't hear back from somebody, it will send you a reminder, which is... Right, I'll put a link to in the show notes for people yeah, to I'll check that Brandon, out. Yeah, uh, Brandon Fu, the founder. <laughs> what everyday thing are you better at or better than most uh, that you do every day? I mean, I think what I was talking about earlier, I think one thing that I do, and this is something that I've learned to do, but it's just be objective in, um, in problem solving. What's your workspace setup like? So generally a mess. What I need to do, I actually have two desks, one desk that just collects clutter because then when I'm working, I need a clean workspace or else it stresses me out. So, What's your best time-saving life hack? I don't know, maybe doing less. What's your favorite to-do list manager or tool? <laughs> yeah, if so you go, if you're an analog. I've wasted more time trying different things the thing that <laughs> i do now and that's worked for a long time is i have one piece of paper and on one side it's got all the big projects and those don't get checked off until they're like completely done and off off the to-do list and on the other side it's sort of my week to do right so the things i want to get done in a given week and um you know they're obviously a subset of the stuff that's on the other side and then i have a notebook where I block out my days and um, yeah, the thing that I try to focus on is having one thing, like a one to two hour thing that I work on in the morning and that I won't touch anything else until I get that done. Hmm. Because most days once I open my email, you know, it's 
it's over. Like, so at least when I have days that run away from me with meetings and stuff, at least I've gotten one thing accomplished. Do you listen to anything while you're at work? Um, I have my headphones either on just noise canceling, <laughs> silence, <laughs> or sometimes I'll listen like binaural audio. But and sometimes when we're just doing shallow work, we'll have music on and stuff. What are you currently reading? Um, well, I just finished Ben Horowitz's book, Hard Thing About Hard Things, which I was going to recommend to you. Very good read. All right. I'll put that one in the show notes. Um, I just started reading Walter Isaacson's Da Vinci, the new Da Vinci book. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I've always got like five going. I'm reading a book called The Conservative Heart. Um, reading... Uh, man, I don't know. There's a few. I'm reading a book on science. It's like, you know those books that you buy that just have like, they're like 7,000 pages of like random facts. The only close thing to that would be the Tim Ferriss books. <laughs> yeah. Is, <laughs> But I'm sure it's not a... It's fun. Yeah. It's like a lot of random stuff. What is your sleep routine like? Terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> Usually fun. I try to read... <laughs> I usually I try to read for like at least 15 minutes before bed just to get my eyes adjusted. What type of reading? Uh, would you say self-help reading or mm -hmm. is more fictional? No, nah, I don't. I don't do a lot of fiction, unfortunately. I wish I read more. Um, I, this is where the science book hits. You know, it's fun. It's You kind of get to like learn stuff. Um, but it's not so... Sometimes when I read more business books, it gets my mind accelerated. What time you go to bed usually? Uh, it, it depends. Again, I think when I have my choice, I'll be in bed around 10 or 10.30 and read for a half hour. Why do you say that? Because it rarely happens. What's preventing you to having your own choice? Me. Me <laughs> making better choices. <laughs> okay, that's a great answer. Deadlines. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused? I call you and I complain about stuff. <laughs> um, I mean, I think being outside, exercise is something that's always been important to me. And that's something that I really try to make a priority even when I don't have time for it. Um, even if it's just running a mile or going down to the gym and, you know, lifting for 10 or 15 minutes, even if that's all you get in, you know, it's still good. Or being outside, skiing, hiking. In the last three years, what have you become better at saying no to? Um, I think the thing that I've gotten better at saying no to, or not really saying no to, but um, being a little bit more protective of my schedule. Mm. And so, you know, I am, I am a people pleaser. And so when people ask for, you know, meetings or coffee, I've always been very accommodating and Um, you know, it can really screw up your week when all you have these scattered coffee meetings and stuff. So I've become a lot more protective of my schedule, even if it means I have to book something two or three months out to keep it, you know, I try to do all my, um, those types of meetings on Fridays now mm -hmm. and I'm pretty, um, yeah, it's, it's been, become a pretty important thing. So what's something that most people don't know about you? I think the thing that most people who know me well versus people who don't know, I'm a lot shyer and I'm a lot more of an introvert than I think most people who only know me professionally realize. Hmm. Now, before we head to the last question, because we're done with this uh, series of rapid fire questions, is where can people find you online? 
Um, so you can, I have a very slim personal website. Um, just my name, stephenclough.com. Okay. And you can learn more about AVO as well at uh, meetavo.com. All right. Last question. Uh, if today was your last day on earth, but you could leave your loved ones and the world behind with three truths about life, what would those be? Unless think about your nephew and niece. Yeah. What um, would that be? You know, one I think would be, as we talked about, to help people, you know, that your purpose here is to help people and, you know, you need to find a way to do that. Um, and I think doing that provides all the other things that people look for, you know, meaning, happiness. I think that's where you find it. Um, I think the second thing that I've often pushed in my own life is, you know, be very uncomfortable with comfort. Um, comfort is something that we value. It's something that we seek to acquire in our society. Um, I think whenever I've gotten to a place in my life where I felt too comfortable, I realized that something had to change. That's a great, I think it's Mario Andretti has a quote that says, if you're in full control, then you're not going fast enough. So, you know, take risks, things will go wrong. But um, yeah, don't, don't overvalue comfort. You know, you, you got to push yourself. Um, and I think third, maybe, that you can do anything you want to do. I think we don't realize things become, because we're very habit-driven, but, you know, you're constantly making choices about, you know, everything that you do in a given moment and how you live your life. Um, you know, we tell kids that they can be whatever they want to be, and then they get older, and we say, you know, you can do these things. Um, and I just, I don't think that's true. I think you can just, I mean, obviously there are limitations, some limitations, but, um, you know, I really think that part of what separates people who kind of get to these places, um, you know, you know, quote success or whatever success for them is that they just do it. They make a choice to do it and, um, and they don't give up. So I think that, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. You just need to do it. So I love it. So it's uh, find how to help people feel uncomfortable, being comfortable, and believe you can do anything you want to do. I love it. Thank you so much, Steven. Thank you. And that was my interview with Stephen Cloth. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access these episode's notes alongside other resources at b.ly slash BTS EP023. Again, that's bit.ly slash BTS EP023. Finally, if you enjoy listening to this interview, the best way to support this podcast is by leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to live a life that moves you.